And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And Father God, we thank you for a chance to assemble again to worship, to express our love and adoration towards you and towards your son Jesus and to just allow the ministry of your Holy Spirit to be at work among us. And we just ask, help us now to continue to worship in spirit and truth as we open the word of God that you've given to us by your spirit. Lord, speak to us things that are true and right and good that we all need to hear. We ask, give us an ear to hear and a heart that's receptive and wants to receive. And please, Lord, speak to us through the ministry of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' wonderful name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, what are some of the characterizing marks or evidences, we might say, of what it looks like or means to, to live for Christ in everyday practical living? Well, that's kind of really where the book of Colossians is leading us towards now. And this morning, even in these verses, we get some further instruction regarding, you could almost say, sort of some of the basics for Christian living. Uh, sort of the Christianity 101 type subjects is what we're getting as we're in this section of the book of Colossians. And we'll see particularly in these short few verses this morning, verse 15, 16, and 17, that the Christian or the follower of Christ should be doing some specific things. For example, we'll see that the follower of Christ should be governed and guided by the peace of God within our hearts. We'll see as well in this section that the follower of Christ should be endeavoring to be appreciative in our spirit, that we should be giving the word of God access on a regular basis to work within us and more than that to be at home within the very fiber work or the fabric work of our hearts and minds and we also we're going to see there in verse 17 should be doing everything that we do as a Christian with excellence in a way that represents and honors Jesus and as we do that we're certainly giving thanks to God by the way we live in that manner so let's look at this together beginning again in verse 15 the first thing that we see again if you're a note taker mentally or by pen and paper we see first of all in verse 15 here that the father of Christ should be first of all governed and guided by the peace of God we should be governed and guided by the peace of God. Look what he says in verse 15 in the text. He says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body. So we're instructed here as a Christian that it is our personal responsibility to yield to the experience of God's peace. That, that's what we should yield ourselves to, the experience of God's peace within as really a determining factor to know what is right and what is wrong. And this is what Paul's getting to here. He says that we're to let the peace of God rule in our hearts. And as we let the peace of God rule in our heart, the wonderful thing is, is it will greatly help us in determining many times what God's will is. 
in regards to just general decisions, everyday living, as well as handling our family relationships. Uh, the word peace, if you look at it from a definition standpoint, speaks of a condition of tranquility. It speaks of a state of calmness and quiet, being at rest or enjoying harmony. Now, without understanding, when the Bible says the peace of God, what it's referring to is an inward experience of peacefulness that is supplied to us by God, that God gives to us a sense of tranquility in our soul. God gives to us an inner peace, an inner calm or quiet because of the fact that we are in right relationship with him. That as things are right between us and God, if that is true, if there's harmony between us and God, that we'll experience peace and tranquility within ourselves. It's a spiritual experience of inward calm and tranquility of being rest in our soul. Now, as we talk about the peace of God, it's important to make mention an important thing in connection to that, that no human being can experience the peace of God until you have first made peace with God. And the Bible speaks of those as two separate things. In fact, the Bible even says to us in the book of Isaiah that there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. That God will purposely allow a person, if they are not in right relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ, God will by prescription cause a person in their inward life to always have a sense of just something's not right. I don't know what it is. I can't even put my finger on it, but there'll just be a troubled, you know, agitated sense of restlessness in the human soul until a person comes into right relationship with God. And, and this is an important thing. We cannot experience the peace of God until we first made peace with God regarding, obviously, the, the condition of sinfulness that exists in all of our lives that we all sin against a holy God. Whether we want to or not, even whether we're willing to admit it to it or not, we all, whether it's in the things that we think, words that we've spoken throughout the course of our life, things that we've done, we all sin, we all fail, and, and we serve and, and are going to account to a holy God. And so therefore, there is something that's not right between us and our Creator that must be resolved. We must make peace with our Creator. We must make peace with this God to whom we're going to give account to and we all have a sin issue that needs to be resolved and that is resolved by, of course, entering into a relationship with God's Son, Jesus Christ. That's how peace with God is made. Paul says to us in Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the way to, in a sense, embrace the peace treaty that God offers to us as his enemies, in a sense, because we are sinful and offensive to God, whether, again, we want to admit it or recognize it or not, the way to embrace that peace treaty is to believe upon the terms that God is offering. And God's terms are this. You are sinful. You do not deserve to go to heaven. You are going to hell. And my wrath will be what you experience for your sinfulness as a human being. Whether you think you are the nicest person on the earth or whether you think you rank up there with the most evil world dictators who've done the most wrong, it only takes one broken law to be a lawbreaker. So it doesn't really matter at the end of the day because we've all missed the standard. 
But yet God in his love, the Bible says, demonstrated his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for all of us who were ungodly. Jesus came, lived the perfect life as the standard of righteousness that's necessary for heaven. And as a man died in your place, in my place, let his blood be shed so that forgiveness of sin could be available and rose from the dead so that the power of death and hell and sin has been conquered by Jesus. And now Jesus extends to us the opportunity as the Savior, as the Lord, as the mediator between God and man. Jesus, the man, the man of God who was God and man and still is simultaneously offers to us that forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life if we're willing to make peace with God through him. That's the only way we can make peace with God is by coming to him through his son, Jesus Christ, accepting what Jesus offers to us and entering into a relationship with Jesus by putting our faith in him and receiving from him what only he can supply to us as the mediator between God and man. That is how we make peace with God. Now, once we have made peace with God, which is something we all must do at some point in our life, if we want to one day be in the presence of God, once we've made peace with God, regarding the condition of our soul through Jesus, as a result, we can then experience what the Bible calls here the peace of God. The peace of God. Because once you've made peace with God through Jesus, Jesus, who the Bible calls the Prince of Peace, who's now ruling in your heart if you've surrendered to him as the Lord over your life, the Prince of Peace is the one who supplies the peace of God within us John 14 Jesus said peace I leave with you my peace I give to you so there's this spiritual experience as the result of entering into a relationship with Jesus where the spirit of the Lord causes our spirit to be at peace within to be restful within there's a sense of inward rest it's a rest for the soul and hear me this morning, this is very important. The Christian should dwell in a relatively continuous state of peace. Once you have made peace with God, you begin to experience the peace of God and the Christian life should be lived in a way whereby we are always in a relatively continuous state of just, I'm at peace with him. It is well with my soul. Life may be challenging or difficult, I understand that, but there's a relative sense of inward continuous peace and peacefulness inside the life of someone who is in relationship with God through Son Jesus Christ, which is very important to remember because if that peace within me then becomes disrupted or if that peace within me I find is absent in some way from my life, then as a Christian, I need to ask, why is that missing? Why am I not at peace within? Why am I restless or, or feel agitated? I just feel, because as a Christian, you should, I should be dwelling in a relatively continuous state of peace within your soul when you're inward man. So if that peace is disrupted or absence, I should be asking why. And this is really the, the idea behind what our verse is communicating this morning regarding the peace of God ruling in our hearts. See, the way this works itself out is here we are, we're facing situations. We're trying to navigate a situation. Okay, I'm a Christian. How should I navigate this as a, as a follower of Christ? 
I have to make a decision about something that I'm supposed to do. And should I do this or should I do that? Or should I do this or should I refrain from doing this? Would God want me to do this? Is it within God's will or is this not God's will? And as we're trying to think through these things, making decisions, is this right or is it wrong? This is what he means when he says here to us, verse 15, look at it. He says, here's how you figure that out. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. Let the peace of God be what rules within you. That word rule is a term in the Greek there that referred to a judge or an official in a sporting event. As they would watch the games and what was happening, the official or the judge would, would make calls and declarations regarding what they observed. It's interesting, the term that's used there could be translated in our English, umpire. That's a little bit more familiar for a lot of us as we think about baseball, for example, what an umpire does, you know, a, a sports official. What do they do? They make calls about things. They watch what's happening, they observe what's going on, and they make judgments regarding what's transpiring. And, and if something is happening that is permissible, it's within the boundaries of the rules of the, the competition. If it's permissible and allowable, then they're okay with it and they let it happen. And if it's something that violates the rules, the red flag comes out or you know some indication that there's been a violation, an error, and it needs to be stopped and that's not acceptable because it's a violation of the rules. So again, if we think of an umpire standing behind home plate there, they watch somebody sliding into home plate and what does the umpire do? They watch the person come in, they watch what's happening as it comes across the plate and they either say, you're safe or you're out. And see, this is the idea of the peace of God at work in our lives. As things are happening in our lives, coming through our experience, we're thinking through things, situations, trying to make decisions. What the Bible's saying is let the peace of God be the internal moral compass, the judge, the umpire, that as it's processed through your heart, that sometimes God's peace is going to say, this is safe. This is okay. God's okay with this and, and God will give his peace to assure this is safe. That's acceptable. This is within the boundaries of my will and my word. And there are going to be other times where the peace of God, like a red flag, is going to give us a reservation, a restlessness, as we say, a check in my spirit. We use that term as Christian cliche lingo. And the peace of God is saying, uh-uh, out of here. No, this is not safe. But it looks, I don't care what it looks like to you. I'm the umpire here, Tony. And we may not even understand why sometimes, or we may not even be able to see it ourselves. But if there is a disruption of peace within us, and if something within us is saying, this is not safe, get this out of here, don't do this, don't participate, don't engage, we would be wise to, this is the idea, let the peace of God be the umpire in our heart. Let the peace of God rule as something is happening, we have to evaluate in this way. So here I have a decision to make. The way I make the decision, oftentimes, as I pray it through and read the word and consider how to respond, I have to ask, am I at peace with this? Or am I not at peace with this? And many times this is a very clear indicator as we're seeking the Lord and praying and in his word and in right relationship with him to be able to determine really what God's will may be or what I should or shouldn't do as a Christian. 
Should I say yes to this or should I say no to this? To let the presence of God's peace rule over what you will do or what you won't do. Let that be what governs your decisions. Let that be what guides you whether to take this job or not take that job. To enter into a relationship with that person or maybe not to enter into a relationship with that person. Not just by what we see with our eyes or what looks good on paper. And I want to say this. It has been a, a help for me for many, many years of my Christian life. Don't ever transgress your peace. I, I have been in situations where sometimes everything else or everyone else just say, yeah, why not? Go for it. And, and then there's just this sense within. I just, I'm, I just don't have a peace about that. And you may not even be able to know why you're seated at that moment, but I'll tell you, if you don't have peace about it, don't do it. Don't. Don't transgress your peace. And then there have been other times where the Lord has been leading me to do things. And I've prayed about it and sought the Lord and maybe it's taken a step of faith or some act of obedience or moving in a particular direction. And there have been times where I have found myself standing alone but no one but God. But there was just that sense. I mean, yes, that looks a little risky or it seems like I don't know. And people, well, I don't know. That seems, I mean, you know, even, that seems a lot of the irresponsible. But listen, I have a peace from God. Doesn't mean maybe I wasn't even afraid in the situation or it didn't require faith still, but there's just that sense of the peace of God was ruling over my heart and God was saying, it's okay, you're safe. You're going to be safe. Step into that. The waters will part. And there's just a peace from God. That there's that sense of God's peace in your heart and, and you're okay with it. So in general, everyday decisions, use this to yield to what you will do or won't do. God says, let my peace be what umpires in your heart and I think as well in handling family relations and what I mean by that working through issues as Christians and resolving things I think the same thing applies here as well and could be what Paul's also sort of alluding to remember our prior verses from last week what was Paul just talking about in verse 13 and 14 predominantly dealing with issues offenses hurts and things that happen among the Christian family remember verse 13 he talked about bearing with one another forgiving continuously one another if anyone has a complaint against another even as Christ forgave you so you must also do and that we have to put on love as the bond of perfection so again it could be what Paul's concerned about here as he says and let the peace of God be what rules in your heart notice he says to which to what peacefulness harmony to which peacefulness you were called verse 15 in one body again in Jesus we were joined together as one spiritual family and we're supposed to dwell together in peace but we know there are going to be times when things arise issues offenses misunderstandings and that peace and harmony is going to be disrupted among us that's why we have to bear with one another and forgive one another and it could be this idea here as well even in regards to how we resolve conflict and challenges and issues that our responsibility as God's family, as his children, is that when harmony is disrupted, when situations arise that, that cause offense or whatever, that we have a responsibility as God's family to do whatever we can to ultimately let the peace of God rule out in that situation. Because our feelings may be all, you know, like a tornado of, of 
feeling this way and feeling that way and then our minds turning the gears and this and that and he's saying listen at the end of the day let God's peace be what rules out in those situations let the peace of God have the final say not your feelings let the peace of God be what rules not your emotions not what you feel you're entitled to not what you think you have a right to, to feel or a way to act. No, let the peace of God ultimately be what rules and governs as you work through these things. Don't go by your practical reasoning of what you think. No, he says, let God's peace have the rulership in your heart. And I would say in relationship to that, ask yourself this question at times. Are you really at peace before God with the way perhaps you've handled that relationship situation before God are you really at peace with how you've left it are you really at peace in regards to how maybe you've dealt with it and if not I'm telling you something if not your peace with God will be disrupted until you address that relationship situation until it is dealt with until it is resolved the Bible says as much as it depends upon you live peaceably with all men Listen, I know this. I mean, you can have a little, you know, you know, spat with your wife or something like that and then just, you know, go there and sit there and try and prepare a Bible study and be praying and the Lord, you know, just like, and, and I'm, I'm not going to say anything to you until you go talk to her. And, and God won't allow you to be in a harmonious, peaceful condition until you have done due diligence before God to ultimately try and let the peace of God rule out in the situation. Listen, I understand it takes multiple people, two people when there's two people involved to a degree, but let us not be making excuses and justifications to have not done what at least we could do in due diligence to the best of our ability where in good conscience before the Lord, I can say, Lord, I tried to let your peace rule out in that situation. At the end of the day, I let your peace be what governed me because we're supposed to be, he says, one body. So I think it applies, again, making those decisions generally for God's will and also in regards to working through these relationship dynamics that he's talking about in context in these verses. And then another thing he mentions going on in verse 15 is he says also the follower of Christ shouldn't just be governed and guided by God's peace, but secondly, we also should be endeavoring to be appreciative in our spirit. Endeavoring to be appreciative in our spirit. Look what he says at the end of verse 15. He says, and be thankful. Uh, now listen, being thankful is, is not really something that's just said, right? It's something honestly that's shown. Uh, notice the Bible here really is not commanding us give thanks. It doesn't say give thanks. It says be thankful. And there is a difference because we can say thank you and we can give thanks with our words sometimes, but my words can be rather shallow sometimes. And I can say thank you and be completely insincere. And I know this because I've raised children, as many of you have, and at birthdays or Christmas, right, you always tell them, now listen, whatever auntie so-and-so gives you, you need to say thank you. And they get it and they open it and, you know, that you could tell they just, thank you. Now, they said thank you, but they're not really thankful, but they said the words thank you. And see, we can do the same. We can give thanks. We can offer lip service and, and express giving of thanks. But the Bible's saying, no, be thankful. Be thankful. 
It's an attitude of the heart. It's a gratefulness of our condition where we actually seek to be an appreciative person in our heart, to truly be thankful, to be thankful to God. And again, sincerely exercise gratefulness, thankful that your sins are forgiven, thankful that you're going to heaven. You don't have to live here on this earth forever. Thankful that one day you're going to be in a, a paradise existence. Thankful that, that, that the Lord is who He is. And that He's done what He's done in your life. And that He can do things that are amazing in your life. To be thankful that it's not completely out of control because there's nothing too hard for the Lord still. To be thankful that you know, the power of sin has been broken in my life. To be thankful that I don't have to give in to temptation anymore. I can live different now. To be thankful that we have a spiritual family and among the spiritual family of God, we can live different than the world does because we have the word of God and the love of God and an understanding of how God wants us to live. I mean, if we just step back and evaluate our lives as God's child, where we have the spirit of God and the word of God and the promises of God. I mean, we're, we're pretty well equipped to have a halfway decent life. And so the Bible says, therefore, that ought to make us be thankful. And I'll tell you, being thankful typically results in our spirit with causing us to be more content as well. That when we are thankful within, we tend to not complain as much and be a more content person. It doesn't take as much to make us happy. We don't have to have this and that and this and that. before. There's just an ability to very simplistically be content. And as followers of Christ, we should not be individuals who are chronically complaining about people or circumstances. Because listen, here we're out in the world, we're telling everybody, oh yeah, God's in control, man. God's in control of everything going on in my life. And then in the next breath, we're complaining about everything that's going on in our life. Technically, what are we doing? We're saying God's doing a really bad job. He's taking care of everything. He's ruling on the throne and he's in charge of my life. But I can't stand the way he's taking care of me. And see, as God's people, when we complain, we're technically complaining about God. We're complaining about the way God's working and what God's doing. And so for us to be able to have a truly thankful attitude is wonderful because it's a demonstration of contentment. And I'll tell you, the wonderful thing is when we're thankful, it also helps us to be a lot more of a peaceful person because typically when someone is ungrateful in their attitude they also tend to be a, a contentious person ungrateful people tend to be a lot more controversial and contentious because they're ungrateful they're unhappy so they're always trying to take control of things and change things because they're ungrateful and they're unthankful and when we become thankful, we tend to have less of a grip on things and we just kind of take things with how it comes because we're at peace and we're thankful. Now, going back to this idea in verse 15 here of the peace of God ruling in our heart as we go forward, to, that peace of God helping rule in our heart to help us to know what God wants and what God's will may be, it might be fitting to ask, how do we, however, make sure we're not being misled by a false peace that can sometimes go on inside of our hearts. And how can we know that this is really the peace of God and not just my own feelings, the idea being, well, I'm at peace with it. And see, sometimes it is possible for that, if you want to call it, peace of God meter within you or that peace of God compass within you to not be functioning correctly. There are times when, when I've spoken to people before who are doing something completely contradictory to the word of God 
living completely outside of the will of God, very evident, very clear, and their excuse and justification is, well, I've prayed about it, and I'm at peace with it. Uh, well, yeah, I'm sleeping with my secretary, and, and I'm leaving my wife and my three children, but, but I've prayed about it, and God wants me to be happy, and I'm at peace with it. And people will at times use this kind of a lingo and a language, and listen, in that situation, that person has a peace but it's a false peace. And it's not the peace of God. Because let me tell you something. God will never be at peace when something's happening that's in violation to the word of God. God's not at peace with that. <laughs> and he'll never be at peace with that because the Bible says his word is settled in the heavens forever. So when somebody says in their hyper-spirituality, well, well, I'm okay with things how they are. I'm okay with it. Well, you may be okay with it, but you're listening to a false peace because what you're doing violates the word of God. And if you are violating the clearly revealed written word of God, you don't have the peace of God in regards to that. And so we need to be careful. So the question becomes this. How do we make sure that the peace of God compass, if you would, within us is working properly? How do we make sure that peace of God compass is really properly working? Well, the best way to be assured of that, look at the next verse. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. That is the safest way to assure that truly it is God's peace because we could best assure we're going to stay in alignment with God's will and God's ways. And if something contradicts, as I said, the word of God, then that is also going to cause God, if you would, to begin to stir up a disruption that causes our peace to be interrupted within. Because as I said, God is never going to be at peace with something that violates Scripture. So the third thing that we could say we see a follower of Christ should be doing is giving the Word of God access to settle into our hearts. Give the Word of God access to settle into your heart and into your mind. He says, verse 16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, with all wisdom. When it says the word of Christ, certainly it's referring to the literal words of Christ, those red letters we find in the Gospels, the actual spoken words of Jesus, but more, it's an inference to the entirety of the word of God because Jesus, together with the Father and the Son, gave to us inspiration of the Spirit as the Trinity, the entire word of God, and more than that, the word of God as a whole, the Bible tells us, is intended to be a book about Jesus. Lo, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. And the word of God is intended to be a book to teach people ultimately how to know and to follow Jesus. So as he mentions the word of Christ, we're, we're thinking here of the word of God as a whole. And we're instructed here that we are to let or to allow, he says, the word of God to dwell inside of us. Now, that word dwell does not mean just to briefly visit. When you dwell somewhere, it means you settle down there. You're, it's your home. And that's the idea here, that we're not just to let the Bible, the word of the Lord, briefly visit our life and then depart so that we no longer think about what it said or allow it to have any influence or take root in our life. But we're to let the word of God have enough time in our life where it actually begins to dwell within us. We allow the word of God to have constant access to my heart, to my mind, so that I become governed by the word of God. I become guided by it, that the word of God settles into my life and it permanently resides within me. The psalmist said, I've hidden your word in my heart 
that I might not sin against you. And so we're to let the word of God dwell within us to become a permanent resident inside of me, not just read it and then dismiss it, not just hear it and then go on and forget about it, but we're to give the word of God constant access so that it starts to rule within us. It actually becomes, in this beautiful way, sort of a part of the fabric of our inner person. The Word of God becomes interwoven in your mind. It becomes interwoven with your inward person to where it becomes literally rooted and settled in and at home within you. And he says there, let the Word of God dwell in you richly. The idea is abundantly, thoroughly, the idea is in great amounts. And my question this morning to all of us would be this. What is our current relationship and experience with the Word of God? Are we allowing it to really dwell within us in a rich manner? Are we allowing, like the Word of God describes here, for it to have constant, continuous access into our lives? Where every day we're giving it time and attention so that it remains a part of our life. Are you giving the Word of God proper access to keep renewing your mind every day and to where it becomes so richly abundant within you that it actually begins to govern your life and it it guides your decisions and directs the ways that you think. Notice what he says here in our verse. If we allow the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly, he then speaks of two results of that. In the next verses, that the word of the Lord will begin to have results as it dwells within us. The first thing we see that will happen is it will cause us to speak in helpful ways to other people. Now, this is a byproduct. If we allow the word of God to dwell within us, one of the benefits, one of the results is we'll start speaking in very helpful ways to other people. See what he says, verse 16? We'll be teaching and admonishing one another so this is a beautiful benefit as the word becomes resident in your life the word of god will begin to be spoken from your life as we're allowing as the lord's people his word to dwell within us the wonderful thing then his word will start to be spoken among us because out of the overflow of the heart jesus said the mouth speaks And now all of a sudden, as he says here, with all wisdom, we'll be teaching and admonishing one another. As we're receiving spiritual wisdom from the word of God, we'll be speaking forth the wisdom of God to one another. We'll be communicating a word from the Lord to each other in this beautiful way. God's word will overflow from within by our speech and we'll be helping each other in the ways that we speak to one another. He speaks of two things specifically there. He says, teaching one another and admonishing one another. Teaching speaks of providing instruction and guidance. And that can happen in a formal way like this where a a Bible study is being shared and teaching is happening. But it also can happen in very informal ways. Whereas we're just speaking to each other in our conversation or maybe talking about something going on in our lives and we're offering counsel to one another and thereby we're speaking in ways that we're helping to guide somebody or instruct them with the word of God and the wisdom of God, how to handle that situation in their marriage or raise their children or make a decision about something in their life. And we're just instructing and discipling and guiding one another. Sometimes teaching happens even by our example. It's nothing to do with what we say. Somebody just sees you living obediently to the word of God in the way that you live your life or the way that you function in your marriage or your family or the way you conduct your ministry or live in in, in some aspect of your lifestyle and your life is teaching them how to live right, 
how to live in accordance with the word of God. And this beautiful thing begins to happen. And then he also mentions that we'll also be admonishing one another. And that word speaks of encouraging or exhorting somebody to do what they already know is right. So teaching tells someone the right thing to do. Admonishing or exhorting says, you know what the right thing to do is. Now get at it. Get started. And sometimes we need to be admonishing one another when somebody knows what's right, but they just need a little challenge to do it. Sometimes people, as we speak to one another, if you know the word of God, it's the word of God that gives you the, the love or the wisdom to perhaps give to someone maybe a reproof about something or to rebuke or to challenge or confront some error. And, and that's necessary that as God's people, as his words within us, so we see something going on and out of love as a Christian brother or sister, we realize, hey, that's not consistent with Scripture. Like, what are you doing, man? That's not a good path you're on. That attitude's not right. And we're able with the word of God dwelling within us to be able to confront error when we see it in each other's lives or maybe to give a word of caution. Hey, be careful. The direction you're going is not good. What you're doing is not going to result in something good and to admonish and perhaps even at times encourage just to do what's right. Sometimes we know the right thing to do and maybe we're just timid. And sometimes God wants to use us to admonish one another. Hey man, you need to trust the Lord. The word of God says that, that my God will supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. You need to trust the Lord, man. And, and sometimes we'll have to admonish one another to do that right thing and to believe what God's going to do. And another thing the word of God dwelling within us does is not just help us to speak in helpful ways, but notice it also helps with expressing worship toward the Lord. He goes on, verse 16, to say that we'll be worshiping in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace or gratitude in your hearts toward the Lord. So notice, as the word of God's dwelling inside of me, that's what triggers within me as a human being as I'm learning about God and I'm reading things about God and I'm hearing things about God from his word to have this inward desire to want to worship God, to want to express worship. The word of God specifically directs us to sing to the Lord, to give him glory and to give him honor in different forms of worship. And some of the forms of singing are described here as a way of worshiping God. He speaks here of singing to the Lord through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When we read here of psalms, that refers to those spirit-inspired poetic writings that we have right within our Bible in the book of Psalms. Many of them are just recorded prayers or songs written out by the psalmist and typically are addressed to the Lord. They're inspired writings and poetic prayers and songs to the Lord. Think of Psalm 51. We sing it. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. And taking this psalm and putting it to music. He also mentions hymns there. And hymns are those doctrinal theological expressions that are written about God where we express through singing great truths about God. Great doctrinal things that we know are consistent with the word of God. Those great hymns, often those are times when we're singing about the Lord. So we're singing to the Lord. We're singing about the Lord. And then he mentions as well here spiritual songs. And these are those spirit-inspired praise choruses who God gives many times by his spirit to those who have a gifting as songwriters. Just I mean, we have such a multitude of wonderful praise choruses. 
just spiritual songs that God has given to people that have been composed. They're fantastic to be used to just worship the Lord in the spirit, to just express from our spirit to God ways of singing and spiritual ways to connect with God. And please take notice here in our verse, the variations of using different forms of music and singing to worship the Lord. He says, Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace and gratitude from your heart. Ephesians 5.19 expresses it the same way. And I want to say this morning, all of those forms of songs have their proper place. They're all intended to be utilized to provide a well-balanced expression of worship. And I think this is wise of God because some people will connect and resonate with certain types of songs better than others. And that will help them to engage and to express worship. And so there's great wisdom, certainly if someone is leading musical worship and singing, to realize, you know what, hey, it is wise and loving to utilize different ways of singing because different people will resonate and connect and be able to worship God in a more comfortable and fluent way. And we all know what that's like. Where perhaps, you know, all of a sudden, some person, you know, a hymn comes, an old hymn. Maybe they were raised with a church that predominantly sang hymns. And all of a sudden, one of those awesome, familiar hymns comes. And all of a sudden, the volume in the room goes up like 18 decibels. Because all of a sudden, there's just this familiarity of this group. They, they know this hymn. And all of a sudden, it just radiates. And then there are other times where perhaps others are familiar with certain praise choruses and spiritual songs and that just, it really connects with them. And maybe a hymn is a little bit more cumbersome and difficult for them to sing a hymn, but they really resonate with spiritual praise choruses that have been you know, generated throughout the you know, years and it's something that they just connect with and it helps God's people remain open in their worship. And from a biblical perspective, I feel very comfortable saying that we should be careful of ever trying to imply or indicate that one form of singing is better than another. Oh, we should only sing the hymns because, I mean, they are deep and theological. I mean, not the hymns. I mean, we should sing the hymns because they are so deep and these praise choruses nowadays and they're so fluffy and light and uh, we, we sing the hymns, right? And, and listen, I love the hymns. They're fantastic. I love to sing hymns. I have many of them memorized in my head. We'd love to sing them. We sing them a cappella on Wednesday evenings on occasion. And there's nothing wrong with singing. They should be sung. They have value to them. And, and, but we need to be careful. Then there are others who you know, have, oh, the hymns. Oh, those hymns are so archaic, man. No, we need to, we, we need to sing contemporary, modern praise chords, stuff on the radio, man. We need to be pumping out the radio. We've got to be relevant. We've got to be relevant. Sing the praise and the spiritual courses, that stuff that we're hearing on the radio. That's what we need to be singing, not hymns. No, that's not right either. Some of the hymns have fantastic theological doctrine in them that is incredible, phenomenal, and both are valuable. And we need to be very careful that we don't try and... I think a balanced diet is always a good diet. And when we worship, I think they all have their place the scripture speaks of all of them having their place here. And notice worship in song is more than just going through the motions of the words. It's a heart condition. You see how it reads there? It says in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace, that's gratitude, in your hearts to the Lord. Notice that singing isn't just going through the words because Jesus said there are people who worship me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
And when we sing to the Lord, notice, it's about singing, look at the text, to the Lord. We don't sing just for the sake of singing. We don't do it just to fill space in a worship meeting. Some people show up to church like that. Oh, as long as I get there by the Bible study. I don't know how God feels about that. You may want to check the peace of God in your heart about that. We're singing to the Lord. Oh, I didn't like the songs that we sang. It really doesn't matter if you like, did God like the songs that we sang? <laughs> We're singing to the Lord. We're not singing to one another. We're not singing for the sake of singing. We're not singing like a pep rally to get psyched up for the Bible study. We're singing to the Lord because he's asked us to. He's worthy of it. It's one of the ways he's told us to express our gratitude. There's something about it that if you just by faith accept it and engage in it, you'll find something very wonderful going on in your heart as you're singing to the Lord and just expressing your love to him. And we're to do it, he says, with gratitude, grace in our hearts. Again, our heart is engaged. So again, where the heart of the worship leader is in the musical portion of the service and where the heart of the congregation is, that is the most important part in the singing. Not how it sounds. Not, where's the heart of everyone at? Making melody in our heart to the Lord, the Bible says in Ephesians 5. And finally, lastly, we see in verse 17, very direct, that the follower of Jesus should do everything with a measure of excellence to properly represent Christ. Look what he says. Whatever you do, this helps, whatever you do, word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So notice, doing things in the name of a person would the idea is representing that person, to honor that person. So doing things in the name of the Lord Jesus means in a manner consistent with who Jesus is. That reflects the nature and attributes of Jesus. That honors Jesus and reflects Jesus. Notice every aspect of our life, everything we do, big, small, everything is to be done with the understanding, I am a follower of Jesus now. So therefore, whatever we do, all that we do is to be done with a mindset, number one, of properly representing Jesus, because I'm a follower of Jesus. And everything I do, whatever we do, all that we do is to be done with a measure of excellence that honors Jesus. This is what our verse is telling us. So when we speak, he says, whatever you do, word or deed, when we speak, what we say or what we don't say, or how even I speak and say the things I speak, I should always ask myself, is this being spoken in a manner that is consistent with the representative of Jesus? Would Jesus want me to speak like this? Or would Jesus want me to say this? And as I'm speaking, also, there should always be the remembrance when we communicate for the Lord, share the gospel, teach a Bible study, talk to somebody. We want to do it with the measure of excellence that honors Jesus because I'm doing this in the name of Jesus. I need to do it with an excellence that honors Jesus to the greatest degree. And whatever we do, he says, in our actions, our deeds, how we live, what we participate in, whenever you do anything in life, deed or action, in a manner consistent that represents Jesus. So I ask myself, would Jesus want me to do this? Should I do that or shouldn't I do it? I'm not sure. Well, could you do it in the name of Jesus? Can you do it in a way that represents Jesus? If you can't, then maybe that's a good indication. And when you are going to do something, he says, do it in the name of Jesus. Again, the idea is with a measure of excellence. You know, I was raised with a father who taught me whatever you do is worth doing right, well, thorough. If not, don't do it. Listen, how much more is a Christian? 
whatever I do, I do it in the name of Jesus. It deserves the excellence of being representative of honoring Jesus. Whatever I do, whatever I do, I'm going to do it in the name of Jesus. Notice there's no separation between spiritual and secular. Whatever we do, all that we do, sometimes we're trying to sort out God's will. Here's a simple and basic way. Just whatever you do, just do it in the name of Jesus. Whatever you do, whatever you decide to do. Well, should I or shouldn't I? Well, listen, well, once you decide, just do it in the name of Jesus to honor him and do it in a way with excellence that pleases him and that is representative of him. And boy, when we begin to do that, following the will of the Lord doesn't become as complicated as what it really seems to be. We just have the peace of God rule in our heart. We have a grateful attitude. We let his word be what's governing us. And then everything we do, we just do it in the name of Jesus to honor him as we're following him as his servants. Let's bow our heads. We'll pray together.